bread of life. Uh, here in John 6 is a long discourse that Jesus gives. We won't be able to cover everything. There's, there's probably eight sermons worth in just this chapter. Uh, I was thinking this morning as uh, we were sitting in the, in the hallway with the tornado sirens going off, uh, thinking back to years ago, I went to a, this thing called One Day for college students. It was a praise and worship day and prayer uh, out on the farm in Texas. And uh, we all camped out in tents the night before, and I'll never forget. It was much like last night. The, the, it was just World War III going on, lightning all over the place. And I just remember laying on the ground as flat as I could in that tent, thinking, I'm not going to put anything up vertical because uh, this lightning is going to get me. Um, we are thankful, as we talked to our kids last night many times, that our Lord is sovereign. He is sovereign over even every lightning strike. Uh, there is no mistaking in all that he does. He is in control. He loves us and he cares for us. And we'll see this in our passage even more so today and how he brings about salvation in the lives of his people. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 4, John notes that the Passover feast was about to be celebrated. That's a, a key note. Verse 4. Uh, this is the second Passover of three that John notes within uh, his account of the life of Jesus. So we're possibly in the middle uh, of Jesus' ministry uh, in Galilee and Jerusalem. And so far in chapter 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000, it says, men. So the estimates were upwards, maybe up to 20,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And then there were 12 baskets left over that were taken up. Uh, 12 is a key number, uh, and there's a lot of themes within the book of John and even in this chapter, so keep that in mind. Then in verses 16 through 21, Jesus walked on the water as they um, moved to the south side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples went over ahead of him. Jesus walked on the water, and uh, that was another miracle that he performed. And we're going to pick up our reading in verse 22 right there. But just before, I want to throw a few questions at you just to ponder this Advent season. What are you craving? What is it that you crave? deep down. And I don't mean just, uh, just the, the food that you, you crave for Christmas. That's part of it. That's part of our cravings. What is your appetite? What are you longing for overall in life? What are you looking for in life? And how does your life, your habits indicate that? What, what's residing in your heart? What are those deepest longings and how do you seek fulfillment of those longings? Let's pick up what our reading in chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? <clears throat> Jesus answered them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up that last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O great eternal God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. And we come in weakness. We say, as the man said to you, Lord Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. O Lord, stir up that seed of faith that is within us and bolster it, strengthen it. And Lord, for those who don't have that seed of faith, may you plant it and water it through your spirit, through your word. Rain down your word even more so today, more than the rain that we had last night, and water the dry ground of our souls. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer, we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. In 1983, a lead guitarist was kicked out of an up-and-coming heavy metal band. Not many of you may be familiar with heavy metal, but it was an interesting story that I ran across recently. This guy was totally shocked and surprised that the other band members one morning woke him up and said, Hey, you're out. And they gave him a ticket for a bus from New York all the way back to California. The band was was thriving up-and-coming, filled with rage and bitterness. He vowed to make this, make his own band, and he was going to do better than this other band. 
So he pulled together a band, and they would, in his mind, make them pay for, forever, for, for kicking him out. He was going to do better. Make them pay. He was going to be more famous. Dave Mustaine started his own heavy metal band called Megadeth, who went on to tour around the world and eventually sold a total of 50 million records. The problem was that the other band that he was kicked out of was called Metallica. They sold 90 million. Uproxx Magazine writes this, Mustaine's biggest problem was that no matter how popular Megadeth got, he couldn't stop comparing their success to that of Metallica, and he could qu never quite measure up, at least in terms of album sales. Even though Dave Mustaine created a critically acclaimed, commercially successful band with millions of fans, he still felt that he was in Metallica's shadow. You know, the American dream shapes us deeply. It tells you, succeed, be popular, be famous. Know your desires, follow those desires. Know your cravings, follow those cravings, find fulfillment. Be famous, be powerful, be rich. Then you will find life. My friends, that is wrong. That is patently false. And the scriptures teach us that over and over and over. And it's very explicit here in, in God's word, especially in Jesus' words to these people. Hear this sobering quote from famous comedian Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. Wow. Famous guy, actor, comedian. Do all that you ever dreamed of, and then when you get to the top and realize it's not the answer, there's more. How, how do I fill up that which is lacking in my soul? It's not the American dream. Every human being has cravings, whether it's mere food or drink, popularity, love, pleasure, etc. But most often we stop there thinking that those are ends in and of themselves, that, that that's what we're created for, and when we find those things, yes, then we'll have life abundantly. And yet, when we lean our ladder against that wall and climb up to the top, we realize there's only another wall. There's another, and there's another, and there's another. We inevitably find ourselves on another quest for fulfillment. We seek like hamsters on a wheel to paddle, paddle, paddle until we can find joy. And yet, we won't. Because here's the main idea of the passage and here's our main idea this morning. Jesus Christ is the answer to all your cravings. Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, is the answer to every craving that you have in your heart. He is the answer. And as we enter this Advent season, we must remember, what is our expectation is it for the national championship? Well, that's not wrong in and of itself to be eager to watch a game for our team to win. But how high do we elevate that? Is our expectation to be met fully in the presence that we get around the Christmas tree? Those are good things on a lower level. But if we lift them up and think that they will fill our souls, we will be disappointed at every turn. Jesus Christ is the answer to all your cravings, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, today the Lord is calling you to a feast. This is a feast of delights continually. It is a feast that centers on the person of Jesus Christ. 
So I'm going to work through two points as we walk through the passage. And again, I'm going to highlight just a few things this morning. Um, Can't cover everything. First, you must see the person of Jesus Christ clearly. So see the person of Christ clearly. That's our first point. Secondly, you must believe in Jesus' finished work. So seeing Jesus clearly, believing in his work for you. Let's work through our first point, seeing Jesus clearly. This is something that the crowd did not see. The crowd that Jesus fed didn't understand who he was. Their cravings for food led them to follow him. In fact, there were more cravings even before that. If you look back to verses 14 and 15, John states that Jesus had to withdraw to the mountain because he knew in his heart they were going to make him king. And so he withdrew. His time was not yet there. So their, their hearts were set on political deliverance. Their hearts were set on being the, government, the Roman government being overthrown and peace being ushered in and the kingdom right then and there through this Messiah, they thought. You see, their idea of Messiah was one of political power. If they could just find that guy who was going to be the victor over Rome, then they would be at peace forever, or so they thought. I'm going to stop right there for a little application. As we're in this world that is swirling with politics, we can often set our hearts so heavily on politics that we will be let down and disappointed, always. Politics is not the answer. Now, are we, are we called to be involved? Yes. Are we called to vote? Yes. Are we called to be discerning? Yes. Are we called to be in the world of politics as believers? Yes. But if you put your hope there for fulfillment, for ultimate peace, it will not be found until the Lord Jesus returns with his kingdom that is full of peace. What we see in verse 26 is Jesus confronting another craving. He rebukes them for following merely for more bread. Let's look at that, and this is where the conversation gets a little bit comical. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And thus that visceral craving of more food is, is what they're after. Jesus discerns that. You're, you're just here for more bread. But there's more standing in front of you than you can ever imagine, Jesus says. He continues on in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God, God the Father, has set his seal. Essentially, Jesus is saying, look, your cravings have led you to the wrong conclusion. You think your highest need is bread or deliverance from Rome? You're wrong. The cravings of your soul are only met in me. Here also, if you notice, Jesus attests to his calling as Messiah. He says, the Father has set his seal on him, meaning himself. And what he's alluding to is is when a king or a ruler would send out an edict or a letter, they would stamp it with a seal of the signet ring on wax. It's not to be broken except by the other official, thus proving its authenticity. And so God has set his seal on Jesus that he is the one to come, that he is the bread of heaven. This is a profound claim by our Lord using the phrase, Son of Man, and then calling God his Father, if you could put yourself in the shoes of the Jews of that day, you would be shocked yourself. Wait, what? Are you serious? 
You're calling God Father? You're equating yourself with God? You're calling yourself the Son of Man, the one to whom Daniel saw in the fiery furnace? Or Nebuchadnezzar saw in the fiery furnace? The conversation then shifts to signs and manna that God fed to the Hebrews while they journeyed through the wilderness. Uh, you can look at that later, Exodus chapter 16. You remember the Hebrews grumbled for food and God rained down manna on the ground. Um, and it was a bread-like substance. Their line of thought here is this. Okay, Jesus, you're implying that you're greater than Moses. Prove it. Rain down manna like he did. That's essentially what they're saying. And you should know, as in view of context, decades earlier there were rabbis that actually taught that, that the Messiah would come and do a greater work than Moses and bring down manna, rain down manna. So there was that line of thought that was there in that culture. But this perspective is clouded and off base. This is why Jesus responds with a rebuke. First he says, God, wait a minute, God sent manna, not Moses. So let's get that straight. You're, you're even elevating this guy, Moses, where, where God is actually the one who provided the, the bread, the food, the manna. And now God has sent the true bread from heaven. So he, he essentially says, God provided then, and God is providing now. And guess what? This true bread from heaven, he's standing right here in front of you, is what Jesus is saying. He is among you. The kingdom of God is among you, as he said often throughout the synoptic gospels. Verse 34, the crowd, much like the woman at the well, wanted the water of life. This crowd wanted the bread in very similar wording and language. Sir, give us this bread. You remember back in chapter 4, the, the woman said, Sir, give, give me that water so I won't thirst anymore. And so this theme is moving on forward with water for the woman at the well. And, and here now it is bread for this crowd who has been fed miraculously. And still they're looking for a loaf when in fact the true food of the soul was speaking to them. Thus Jesus' profound statement in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You notice that first statement, I am. That subject verb of the same thing that, that God proclaimed to Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus. Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them that the I am sent you, which is, which is the Hebrew ver verb, Yahweh, to be. This is where we get the word, the name of God, Yahweh. It means I am. It's the verb to be. I, am, I was, I am, I always will be. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's proclaiming that he is actually the manna from heaven sent by God to satiate famished souls. Verse 48 and 49, Jesus reiterates that he is the bread of life. I mean, he says it many, many times. He's the bread of life. He's the manna from heaven. Over and over again, he's, he's reiterating, Hey, look, please understand what I'm telling you. Yet as stated in verse 36, the crowds did not believe. I'm going to ask this morning, do your cravings lead you to the feet of Jesus? In other words, why are you here today? Are you here just for show? Are you here just to check a box? Are you here just because that's what your parents told you to do? Are you here just because that's what your parents did for decades? Why are you here? Are you here to put on a front? 
Are you here to look good? Because everything's crumbling at home. Why are you here? I want to submit to you. You are here to delight in Jesus Christ himself. You are here because you were made to worship. Because Jesus longs for your worship. Because in your worship of him, you gain delight and he gains delight. And it's a banquet of delights. This is why you were created. This is why you're here today. Is to worship Almighty God. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 63 says it like this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You hear that? My soul will be satisfied as with rich food. It's that connection of food and the, and the soul. And the bread from heaven come down. God has made you to crave, better put, God has created you to worship, to adore, to be enamored by him alone. This is why St. Augustine said this in his confessions, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. So today we're challenged to see Christ clearly, that he is the Messiah, that he did break in, he came into time and space, he became man, he took on flesh, as John chapter 1 says, and that's what we celebrate in Advent, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold his glory. But not only that, not only must we see who he is in his person, we must believe in his work. That's our second point. We must believe in Jesus' work for his people. Uh, Jesus states who he is, and then the crowd asks an interesting question. I skipped it earlier, but we want to go back to it. Verses 28 and 29, look there. Then they said to him, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that's the work, simply to believe. Often that's hard for us to understand. Wait a minute. Okay, Jesus, you're saying, uh, they're asking about work, and you're saying, I just want you to have faith. Faith, yes, yes, faith. The work is faith. And even that is a gift of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful gift of God that he gives to us. You see, if you think you can earn eternal life through a laundry list of good works, you're mistaken. You think you can give enough money or come to church enough or help a lot of ladies cross the street to earn heaven, you're mistaken. You're dead wrong. You can't. There is no work that you can do that you can accomplish to gain eternal life. There's only one way to eternal life, and that is sheer faith in the work of Christ for you. In verses 37 through 40, Jesus teaches the precious doctrine of divine election. It's beautiful. The Father gives the Son his people, and he will thoroughly save them and keep them forever. And this is why we sing, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. 
For my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast. Jesus will persevere his people. Not only will he save his people, he will persevere us to the end. And that is a beautiful, beautiful doctrine that God has placed right here in the midst of this discourse. In fact, divine sovereignty and salvation is a major theme throughout the whole book of John and in the whole Bible itself. That before we were even born, as Adam stated last week as he was preaching, God saw us way down the line. He didn't see us and say, yeah, they're going to be good enough. Let me pick them on my team. No, he said, they'll never be good enough. And yet I'm going to set my love on them so that they will know me. I'm so thankful for that. I am so thankful. Encouragement for you today is to believe in Christ and you will be saved. You will inherit eternal life. Well, you may ask, Caleb, okay, well, what exactly is the work of Christ? Look at me at verse 51, and this is a key verse that gives a key of interpretation to the whole passage. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And get this, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I will give is my flesh, Jesus says. This last line is crucial. Remember that back in uh, chapter 1, verse 29, what did John the Baptist proclaim? Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And what, as we said earlier, did John note in this passage? It was the Passover. So make no mistake, it it is not coincidence that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem and headed toward the Passover. And he says, I will do this in my flesh. What is he saying? He's saying that I am the Passover lamb. My flesh will be crucified, vicariously atoning for the sin of the world. This is what Jesus was stating. In my flesh, I will do the work of God. There is no work for you to do because I have to do it in my flesh for the life of the world. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 6 and 7, which states this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You hear that? The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So he fills up. He is the ultimate sacrifice, taking our sin upon himself and giving us his righteousness. This is why Hebrews 9, 12 through 14 states this. He, Christ, entered once and for all the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You hear that? In other words, 
His sacrifice is better. It is the final sacrifice. There is no more work to be done. It says later, he sits down at the right hand of God as the high priest. In the Old Covenant, when the high priest was at work, he never sat down. He was always at work, always sacrificing animals. But when someone sits down, the work is finished. And this is what Jesus is saying to these people. I have come. Believe in me. Walk with me. And he says very hard words to understand. And yet, at the end of this chapter, many are turning away from Christ. And he turns to his disciples and says, you going to run away too? You going to turn from me? What we must know is that Peter says, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Believing in Christ whom he has sent and believing his word, what he has said about what he has done. This is the work of God that he calls you to today. I want to encourage you, wherever your cravings are, those, those felt cravings and, and even real cravings, take them to Christ. Take them to the person of Christ. Find yourself in him. Believe in him. Run to him. Delight in him. Feed on him. And enjoy him forever. And you will not be let down. You are called to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to know his person clearly, and to believe in his work for you. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are pulled astray easily, making idols of things and people, relationships, materials, money, status. Our hearts crave and crave and crave. And we need you, O oh Lord, through your Spirit to fill up our souls. Even today, as we approach your table, may we be nourished and filled that we would commune with you through your Spirit and that, Lord, you would move us to greater heights of delight, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. O oh Lord, bread of life, come to us now and enrich us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Could I have the elders come forward, please?